welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We are continuing on in our series that we've been throughout Lent here uh, over the last few weeks. We are looking at Jesus' experience in the wilderness and just kind of asking, kind of looking at different aspects of his experience in the wilderness and uh, seeing how we may also enter into some of these experiences. Uh, we start off looking at the preparation role that the wilderness has. Last week we talked about solitude, and this morning we're talking about temptation. So our passage is, once again, as it has been throughout the series, Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 16. So if you would turn there with me in your Bibles, and then if you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? So Jesus, we ask that you would show us the way to overcome the temptations that we face in our life. Pray this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Carol and I were married August 21st, 1993, which quick math means that this August we will have been married for 30 years. Yeah, thank you. There's a little woohoo right there. Just in case I missed my anniversary. Now you know what it is and you can, uh, and I, I, it's still 30 years later, and I can still remember the night that I realized that she was, as my grandpa would say, a keeper. <laughs> it was one Sunday night, we were back in college, and we were trying to decide if we were going to be, you know, seeing each other later or doing anything. And Carolyn said something to the effect of, well, I'd love to, but I have this, this paper to write. Uh, to which I responded, hey, you know, I have some homework to do too. So uh, here's a thought. Um, How about I come over and, you know, we can do homework together. 
It was such a wonderful thought to me. I wondered why nobody had thought of going over and doing homework with their girlfriend before. Uh, so she agreed, and so that night I came over to her apartment, and, and she had borrowed her roommate's computer, because, yes, kids, there was a day back then where not everybody had their own computer. And her roommate had one of those, like, first-generation Macintosh thingies, which had this amazing innovation to it called a mouse where you'd move the thing around it, the, the arrow would move on the screen, and it was innovative, cutting-edge stuff. And the monitor and the processor was all in one big, one little thing here with this little tiny black and white screen that was about that. Because one of those, you guys remember one of those? Anybody have? Well, so we're sitting there, and she started, you know, typing away, and I started doing my homework, probably some sort of, Math derivation of some kind. I don't really remember what I was working on. All I remember was her. <laughs> so beautiful. So studious. Fervently click-clacking away on her paper. And I was gazing at her. Something caught my eye. A button. It was a button, but in an odd place where a button shouldn't be. You see, what this picture doesn't show is that on the side of the computer, towards the back, down in a corner, all by itself, is a button. There's no label. There's no indicator. No word on what it's for. So I thought to myself, I wonder what this button does. And a voice in my head said to me, well, you should push it and find out. Now, I was studying engineering at the time, electrical engineering no less, which on the one hand explains my curiosity with buttons. Of course, on the other hand, it also tells you that I should have known better. But nevertheless, almost by itself, my index finger push the button. Immediately the clackety-clack stopped and my beautiful girlfriend bride-to-be made the most not-so-beautiful sound that I'd heard her make up until that point. Ah! What just happened? And I didn't want to tell her. So instead I asked, well, wh wh what do you mean what just happened? Said, I don't know, the computer just went blank and now it's starting itself all over again said to myself, oh, it must have been the reset button. Which the experimental engineer side of me was very pleased to have discovered. But then, oh, the reset. But again, kids, uh, back in the olden days, computers had these hard reset buttons, not unlike the self-destruct buttons on all of Dr. Doofenshmirtz and Aders uh, that you push and just it just restarts, like no warning, no save first, no, do you really want to do this? Just, it would do it. So, that was the thing. So I very sheepishly told her about the button, about my little real-time experiment that I had successfully run, and how it was my fault that she had just lost the last hour or so of her typing. You know what? 
she didn't dump me. And that's when I knew she's a keeper. And I know in retrospect, it seems obvious, right? I mean, what was I thinking? I should have known something was going to happen. All I had to do was tell her I was going to push the button before I pushed the button. And she could have saved her work. Everything would have been okay. But you know, that's the way it is when we succumb to temptation, right? Hindsight is always 2020. It's always so obvious what we should have done. Sadly, most of the times when we succumb to temptation, the results aren't just that our loved ones lose an hour's worth of typing. Most of the time when we succumb to temptation, there are much more severe consequences. Our relationships are damaged. Innocent people get hurt. People that we love, people that we don't even know. Creation itself is impacted. Future generations bear the consequences of the times that we do not resist temptation. If only there was a way that we could get this 2020 vision before the fact. Some way that we could prepare ourselves so that when temptation comes, we can see it coming and recognize it as obviously irrational as pushing an unmarked button on the side of a computer that your girlfriend is using to type a paper. Well, of course, if we look at Jesus, it would seem to indicate that there is. Because, you see, we left off last week with the words, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. And as the message kind of wound down, we were reveling in the amazing fact that the Holy Spirit is actively leading us into the solitude of the wilderness. Which is a comforting fact to reflect on. Right up until you hear the words, to be tempted. To be tempted. Then... I don't know about you, but I was a little shocked, right? Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted? Like on purpose? I mean, just when we were beginning to trust God in the wilderness, turns out that one of his agendas for us in the wilderness might be that we, like, would be tempted? I mean, isn't it one of the things that Jesus taught us to pray is, Father, lead us not into temptation? How is this then a loving thing? Why would he do that to Jesus? And maybe, I guess, another question is, would he ever do that to me? Would the Spirit ever lead me into the wilderness to be tempted? I thought about that for a moment, and it occurred to me, of course, that the Spirit doesn't have to lead me anywhere to be tempted. Like, I'm really good at finding temptation all on my own. Thank you very much. You see, the, temptation, the way temptation works, according to James chapter 
1 verse 14 is that each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So temptation starts with a desire, uh, an appetite, a craving for something. And really, the thing that we are wanting or craving, it doesn't even have to be bad in and of itself. It's just there. The temptation comes in when we are then enticed to satisfy that appetite or desire or craving in some way that is incongruent, that doesn't fit with the ways of the kingdom of God. And then once we let that desire take hold or conceive, to use James' word, the sin comes in when we say that yes. That yes to the alternative route, the temptation has suggested that we satisfy that desire or craving or, dare we even say, something we might consider a need. Like, there's nothing wrong with looking at a button and wondering what it does. In fact, you could argue, yes, you could argue, that that kind of curiosity is actually a virtue. The temptation comes in when you hear the voice, well, the best way to find out what the button does is to push it. Who cares about the consequences? And still, just because one hears that voice, that in and of itself doesn't make it a sin. Like, nobody gets hurt. Shalom remains undisturbed here. It is when that message sinks in And one says that eternal yes to act on it. Well, that's when sin occurs. And you can see how this extends to the other desires that we might have. Like our desire for justice is leveraged then to entice us to violence, to entice us to anger. Or even to hold a grudge against someone who we feel has treated us unfairly. Our instinct to care for ourselves or our loved ones gives way to selfishness or to lead us to manipulate others for our purposes, to get what we want, to lie when we feel that it serves to protect us from some unpleasant experience. Our God-given sexual desire is used then to tempt us to satisfy it in ways that are outside of God's plan or God's design. And on and on and on we could go listing the ways that our natural desires are leveraged to tempt us. To get us to think and act in ways that are incompatible with the eternal kind of life. And in our day-to-day lives, I mean, it happens so quickly that a lot of times we don't even notice it, right? I mean, sometimes we can get so used to falling for temptation that it's hardly even, like it's hardly even temptation anymore. We get into habits of satisfying our desires, satisfying our appetites outside of the kingdom of God. We don't even realize we're doing it because in our lives, you know, stuff is happening. 
Things are coming and going. People are clamoring, noise, busyness. This stuff is happening so quickly, so fast. We don't have time to think. We just react. You know what would be great? What would be great is if there was somehow that we could just kind of slow things down a bit, right? So that we could actually see the temptation coming. Like, if only there was somewhere we could go where we could get rid of the distractions and we could, like, really focus on these desires, these places in our heart where, where we routinely fall into temptation. Like, somewhere we could examine, like, the desire behind the temptation that's pushing us into it and, and maybe be able to deal with the unsatisfied longing that is being distorted by the temptation. If only... There was a place like that. A place like, well, like maybe the wilderness. You see, maybe, maybe the spirit leading Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil wasn't some sort of like, I don't know, rite of passage. wasn't some sort of test that you know, just to see if he could make it or, or some way to see if he gets tripped up. But rather, maybe the Spirit was taking Jesus to a training ground. A training ground where he could actually see the temptations that he was going to be facing in his ministry and life and practice saying no to them in a controlled environment. Kind of how the best way to practice your free throws is not when you're standing at the line in front of thousands of spectators with no time on the clock and down by one. Not the right time to practice. No, the best place to practice your free throws is by yourself with no one in the gym. So you can just focus on your technique. Focus on your form. Here Jesus is is at the beginning of his ministry, just about to step out into the public eye to begin to show people who he was. Things were going to start happening really, really fast. So the Spirit leads him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. To practice his free throws. So while I am really good at finding temptation on my own, maybe the Spirit would lead me into the wilderness as a training ground to help me learn to overcome temptation. Because see, you take all of those desires, all these longing, all these things that that get us pushing buttons in life, we take all that stuff into the wilderness with us. And maybe it's a training ground for me to help, to help me learn how to overcome temptation. When I think about it that way, it's actually not scary. I think about it that way, it actually, it actually sounds, like a, sounds like a really good idea, actually. Like, I don't know about you, but I could use some practice in overcoming temptation. And really, the thought that this temptation in the wilderness thing was a training exercise for Jesus is kind of reinforced for me when we actually take a look at the specific temptations uh, that we're told about in this passage. 
The first two uh, have this one phrase in common. Uh, in verses 3 and verse 6, you see Satan starts with, if you are the Son of God. If you are the Son of God. Not that the devil here is trying to have Jesus wonder whether or not he was really the Son of God. I, he, they really both knew that he was. But rather he's trying to trick Jesus into misusing his identity as the Son of God. Kind of the same sort of uh, thing we used to do when we were kids, you know, sitting around at a diner and somebody says, well, if you're a real man, you should drink that whole bottle of Tabasco sauce. Or something equally ridiculous, right? Um, not that your gender was ever really in question. The challenge there is to get you to use or define your manhood in the way that somebody else wants you to. That is what the devil is attempting here with Jesus in terms of his identity as God's own very special son. In this first temptation, he is tempted to use his identity for his own purposes. The question here is not whether or not it was okay for Jesus to make food out of something that wasn't food. Like we see him doing that and he turns water into wine. He, you know, makes food for 5,000 people with no problem. That's, that's not the issue. The issue here is him using his power for his own purposes and not for God's. Using his power to satisfy his own needs on his own. You see, even though Jesus had created everything there was around him, Jesus had submitted himself and his power to God. Philippians 2, 6 uh, through 11 reminds us Jesus did not stubbornly cling to his divine nature, but he willingly emptied himself of the free exercise of his divinity, and he made himself obedient to the Father. It's not that he couldn't turn rocks into bread. It's just that it wasn't his call anymore. That's not what his power was for. Of course, at first glance, it may seem difficult to believe that the devil might ever try this one on us because most of us are not too convinced that we'd be able to turn rocks into bread even if we wanted to. But there is the temptation for us to use our gifts, our abilities, our resources for our own ends, for our own benefit, not for furthering the kingdom of God. You see, God has made us with unique gifts and abilities, given us resources. In addition, the Holy Spirit equips us with, and empowers us with spiritual gifts for the furthering of his mission and his purposes in the world. Whether it's our ability to influence others or ability to run an organization or some creative talent that we have or even just the fact that we can work and make money. The temptation for us is to leverage these abilities, leverage these gifts for our own gain, for our own provision. Whether within the church or in the marketplace, and then just to use them to promote ourselves and our own importance along the way. Instead of bringing everything that we are into submissive obedience to the Father and taking our cues from Him as to how we should use them and then trust Him along the way for the sustaining 
of our lives. The second temptation, Jesus is taken to the highest point in the temple and then challenged to throw himself down. Because, of course, as the devil so scripturally points out, God said he'll catch you. And the temptation here is to try to manipulate God. To try to put him to the test, as Jesus clearly points out in his reply. This was the temptation for Jesus to use his place as God's very own son to now control the father by forcing him into a corner where he had to, you know, keep his promise. We used to do this to our parents all the time as kids, didn't we? My kids try to do it to me all the time. Like, I'd ask my dad, you know, we'd be out somewhere and say, Hey dad, can, when we get home, can, can I go out to, can I go over to my friend's house when we get home, please? Can I? Please? My dad would say, sure. But then something would happen, we'd get stuck in traffic, or he'd get stuck in a conversation, or the line at the grocery store was too long, or something like that. And we'd get home later than he'd planned, and we'd get home right at dinner time. So I jumped out of my car, I jumped out of the car, and I'd be like, hey, dad, I'm going to, my friend says, like, no, 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 wait, wait, no, it's time for dinner. We got to eat dinner. We don't have time for that anymore. He tries to explain that, you know, he had said I could go when we were going to get home at a reasonable time, but now it's not a reasonable time because now we have to, you know, eat dinner, take a bath, go to bed. And then I'd pout, and I'd say, yeah, but you promised. You promised. We fall into this with God sometimes too, don't we? Like we get tempted to get into some risky business deal on the basis that, well, you know, since God is, we're God's children, and so everything we will do will prosper, right? We're tempted to jump into a mortgage that's too big for us. Under the guise of it, well, you know, it's a step of faith, and just know that God will provide. We're tempted to enter into unhealthy and inappropriate relationships because, well, we know that God loves us and wants us to be happy, right? And since this relationship would make me happy, we try to coerce a word of guidance from God, even though we are blatantly disobeying him in all sorts of other areas in our lives. And in all these things, what we're, we're, we're tempted to try to control God. In all these things, we're tempted to try to treat him like a genie, try to find some way to just kind of rub the lamp just the right way so that he has to do what we say. You see, we have to remember that while it is true that God loves us and his promises for us will not fail. His promises are not like secret codes that we can use to get him to do what we want him to do. What they are, are statements of his character that he will fulfill whether we know about them or not. But he does so as an act of his will. Not ours. And then the third temptation. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And this one, if you ask me, is really the most enticing of them all. All the kingdoms of the world. In essence, the devil is saying, 
I'll step aside. I will give you everything you came for. And here's the clincher. No cross. The no cross clause. I mean, imagine getting to enjoy all the benefits of living in the kingdom of God without ever having to experience the cross. Imagine getting to experience peace and joy and love without ever having to die to yourself. Imagine getting to radically obey Jesus without suffering any repercussions from a culture that is hostile to him and his ways. Imagine getting to wield all the power of the kingdom while still getting to harbor lust and resentment and laziness and all the other sins that we tend to be so fond of. Yes, this has to be the most enticing temptation of all. Sadly, one to which I have succumbed far too many times. But it's just so attractive because, I don't know, it just, it just feels like a win-win, doesn't it? Like Jesus gets what he wants and he doesn't have to die an excruciating death to get it. All he has to do is worship the devil. To ascribe worth to the devil, his values, his ways, his tactics. Just bow to something that is not God. How hard can that be? Well, thankfully, Jesus refuses. He refuses not because he's too proud. Again, as Philippians 2 points out, Jesus had already humbled himself beyond all imaginable measures in becoming human. No, he refuses because it's a lie. God cannot bow to anything else because that would make him not God. Jesus cannot rule over the kingdoms of the earth without the cross because without the cross, the kingdoms of the earth would still belong to the devil. And it's a lie for us too. See, there's no such thing as following Jesus without the cross. In a few chapters, Matthew will later record Jesus as saying that anyone who is not willing to take up their cross and follow him cannot be his disciple. See, there's a part of us that has to die. There's a part of us that has to cease to exist in order for us to fully live in the reality of the kingdom of God, for us to fully experience the eternal kind of life. That's a part of us that is addicted to sin. It's a part of us that is addicted to self. That has to get, be gotten rid of for us to be able to follow Jesus. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. And I'm not, frankly, really sure whether this is something that he had to go through or something that he was just doing for our benefit. But either way, there is an invitation to us here to enter into the wilderness where we face temptation head on with no distractions no excuses where we willingly put ourselves in the path of suffering 
and learn to counter the tempting lies of Satan with God's truth. Where we willingly learn to take up the cross of Jesus and follow him. Would you bow your heads with me? And as we end the service here, I just want to create a little bit of space, a little bit of wilderness space for you. Just to experience and to counter maybe some temptation that you're feeling. We all feel it all the time. But maybe in these moments as you've been here, there's one particular temptation that uh, you just feel is there. And maybe the Spirit has bubbled it up, has given you clarity. Maybe it fits in one of these three examples that Jesus experienced. Maybe it's something completely different. But as we close and as we worship, just want to open up a little space for you to uh, face that with the Spirit at your side. Allow the truth of God to speak into that temptation that you are facing. Allow God to speak to you there. As Jordan mentioned earlier, we have these prayer areas at either side of the auditorium here. There's a kneeler there. There's sand to... Maybe you even write out the temptation that you're feeling with your finger and just let the truth of God just erase it and smooth it away. But again, there is a space for you here to face that temptation head on. So as Jordan and the band lead us in worship, I just invite you to pay attention to what God might be saying to you in your heart.